would look for the symptoms of depression and you know yourself best. If you've been feeling down, depressed, um, or low most of the day, nearly every day for a period of two weeks, I would look into depression and, and get connected to some resources. and welcome back to STEM Power, the podcast where we interview top researchers and doctors in all fields of STEM. My name's Simran. And my name is Rhea. In today's episode, Simran and I will be talking with someone who knows a lot about sleep, specifically the sleep that teenagers get, or rather the sleep they don't get. She got her honors BSc from Queen's University in Psychology and Life Sciences and is now a PhD student. She's the winner of the Dr. Harvey and Grace Brooker Award, recipient of the Joseph Armand Bombardier Canada Graduate Scholarship Doctor Award, and recipient of countless other awards. Joining us today is Nicole Carmona. Hi. Hi, we'd like to just thank you so much, Nicole, for joining us today on STEM Power because Rhea and I are extremely excited to get to know you and all about your work as well as how it affects teens like us. For sure, yeah, it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, judging from the fact that I do my PhD in sleep, I love talking about sleep. And so um, I'm really excited to be able to kind of share some of the work that I do and and my lab mates do as well uh, at Ryerson University in the world of sleep. Awesome. So Nicole, as Rhea mentioned, your background is in psychology, uh, which is the scientific study of the human mind and its functions. So what exactly made you realize that you wanted to go into researching um, the psychology of sleep? Great question. So originally, the way that I happened upon Dr. Colleen Carney, who's my um, academic advisor at Ryerson, is that I saw that she studied depression. And so as an undergraduate student, I was really interested in getting research experience um, with subjects who had either major depressive disorder or just high uh, depressive symptoms. Um, and in attending lab meetings over the course of about four months, I got a lot of exposure to research and treatment of insomnia. And I found myself really captivated by insomnia because everyone sleeps. And as I came to understand, many people don't sleep very well. Um, and so that's what makes it so broadly applicable. Um, I really enjoy studying phenomena that um, apply to a wide variety of people and have like broad applications. So I study fatigue as well. And the reason I'm, I'm so passionate about understanding fatigue is that uh, everybody experiences that too, right? And we see it mm -hmm. clinically manifesting in, you know, patients with cancer, patients with multiple sclerosis, people with depression, people with insomnia, people with anxiety. And so um, I'm really just fascinated by things that have a lot of, of broad applications and are really relevant to a lot of different people. That's so true. Like a lot of things that obviously everyone sleeps, right? But it's so strange. I remember searching up uh, symptoms of a lot of the uh, illnesses you mentioned, like cancer and multiple sclerosis. And a lot of the things have like the same side effect, like fatigue or other sleep related disorders. So it's it's strange how one small thing that people tend to overlook is so relevant to our health in all aspects. So obviously, as you said, like sleep is super important. It's important to how we function every single day. But especially right now, like, for example, a teacher Simran and I have sleeps, I don't know, maybe like four or five hours a day, basically functions off coffee. And we hear that most of your research interests revolve around this whole um, idea, like, sorry, the illness of insomnia, like you mentioned. So what is 
in how was insomnia diagnosed in people? So I know a lot of people have trouble sleeping, but what defines insomnia and what are the common symptoms? And again, like how is it linked to depression? A bunch of great questions. So insomnia, I like to differentiate first between insomnia symptoms and insomnia disorder. So insomnia symptoms include difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, or difficulties with waking up too early and not being able to fall back asleep. And so we know that people who are experiencing insomnia symptoms, like that's super common in the population. Mm-hmm. When it becomes insomnia disorder is when it has to meet a few other criteria. Um, so we would want to be seeing it happening at least three nights a week for a period of three or more months. And we also look for an association with some kind of daytime complaint. So it's not just that you're experiencing difficulties with sleeping, but you're also experiencing or reporting high levels of fatigue, impairment in your work functioning or your relationships, difficulties with concentration, memory and attention, um, and other things like that. And then we just want to make sure that we're ruling out other possible causes of insomnia. Um, or other possible causes of sleep disturbance, I should say. Um, So sometimes other sleep disturbances might mask themselves, masquerade as insomnia, like restless leg syndrome can cause difficulties with falling asleep because there's this very uncomfortable sensation in your legs and this very strong urge to move your legs. And so we would want to make sure that the insomnia complaint is not just because of that other sleep-wake disorder. So that's how we diagnose it. Um, And I do think that it's important to mention that insomnia is one of the more subjective or experiential um, sleep-wake disorders. So whereas you might see people going for sleep studies where they're hooked up to a bunch of wires and it monitors their brain activity and their muscle tone and their respiration rate and all those things, those are really good at diagnosing objectively other sleep disorders. But Insomnia, in contrast, is actually more of a disorder of perception. And so we rely a lot more on um, the individual's report of their experience or use something like sleep diaries where we're able to get a sense of their night-to-night experience and how they um, remember it on waking up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I find that really interesting how with insomnia and uh, similar to like other sleep disorders as well, it's mainly just diagnosed by looking at your history and how it's affecting you. And then you kind of just work together with your doctor to come to a final conclusion. There isn't one set way to be like, yep, you have insomnia. No, it's it's really based on your history. And I I think that's really Mm -hmm interesting. And I think that there's a lot of growth potential in that area uh, to come up with different ways for diagnosing these types of sleep disorders. So I I really find that intriguing. And um, Nicole, Rhea and I are both teenagers, as you know, and um, we have super messed up sleep schedules uh, Mm -hmm. because of sleep because of school and we tend to sleep super late because we just don't get tired. So why is it that young people tend to just get tired later and fall asleep at night around like 1 a.m., 2 a.m., while older people like seniors aged 65 and above get tired earlier? So there are a couple different reasons for that, Um, but we do see a developmental influence or a developmental shift in our circadian rhythm. So sleep is primarily regulated by three systems. Um, We have our 
homeostatic system, which is our pressure to fall asleep based on the amount of time that we spend awake and active within a 24 hour period. Um, and then our circadian rhythm, which is our body's clock. And the third one that plays a really big role is our uh, arousal system as well, which can interfere with those two other systems. So we do know that once people reach adolescence, um, their circadian rhythm shifts later. And so what that results in is a tendency to go to bed later and a tendency to wake up later as well. Unfortunately, because of early school start times and things like extracurriculars um, in the pre-COVID before times when uh, going to practices, for example, like playing basketball and, and having to wake up at five, six in the morning to go practice mm -hmm. was a thing um, that would lead to a lot of sleep problems in people with uh, in people who were teenagers because they had this biological tendency to go to bed later. Um, and biologically, their bodies wanted to wake up later, but society told them they had to wake up early. On the flip side, as we get older, um, our circadian rhythm shifts in the opposite direction. And so we notice this tendency to actually fall asleep earlier and wake up earlier. Um, so we, we do see what we call like phase shifts uh, as we age. That's really interesting. I'd say that's eye-opening, but I hope I know that's eye-closing for me at <laughs> this age. But yeah, so I think that's really important that you mentioned, like how, like as you get younger and also, sorry, as you get older as a teenager, your rhythm shifts farther and yet there's things in society like school and practices that are pushing us to wake up earlier, which I guess is counterintuitive. So maybe in the future, we'll see that change if um, we, just, we realize that it's actually causing problems among teenagers. But another new thing, like you mentioned, like, now practices aren't happening. People are doing a lot of stuff from home online, but we're hearing a new problem in the sleep world. People are having coronasomnia, which is when their sleep has taken a hit from the pandemic. And obviously it's caused by a multitude of things like stress, anxiety, having a lot of online time. But what, what do you think is the main cause for this? And why are so many people having trouble with insomnia? And have you seen a spike in sleep-related issues? So... I think it would be really challenging to just pinpoint one really big cause for difficulties with sleeping. I think um, we can't deny the role of many of those things that you already mentioned, right? So stress and anxiety, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding a pandemic that mm -hmm. can certainly influence um, our sleep by having this effect on our arousal system, right? So it's jacking up our arousal system, jacking up our fight or flight which then is unfortunately sleep incompatible. And so that's one side of it influencing that uh, sleep regulatory system. But we also know that people are more sedentary during the pandemic, especially I mean, in Ontario, we've been in lockdown for what feels like a century. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's taken away a lot of activity, um, especially social things that involved high levels of physical activity. Um, but even on a solitary level as well. So um, more sedentary behaviors can certainly influence sleep because we're not building as much of that homeostatic pressure. And another factor that I think is so important to recognize is that with the whole work from home situation, a lot of people probably do more activities from their bed than they used to. Mm -hmm. And while that is super cozy, 
right? And and the idea of doing Zoom school from bed might be really appealing. <laughs> what it can do is it can create um, an unconscious association or pairing between the bed and wakefulness. When what we really want is an association between the bed and sleep. And so spending more time in bed, not sleeping can inadvertently increase this problem and then lead us to be awake in bed when we actually don't want to be. So we can see that a lot of different things that are pandemic related right now can influence our sleep in multiple ways by influencing almost every single one of our uh, sleep regulatory mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really found it interesting how you pointed out the fact that so many people are doing things from their bed now. And I mean, that uh, that like analogy that you brought forward, it can apply to so many things as well. When you use something for too long, it kind of loses its meaning and it, its true purpose. And I think that's what's going on with a lot of people right now um, during this pandemic. But I really hope now, especially in Ontario with the openings, that um, we can see less people dealing with this new term, Corona somnia. So yeah, yeah I'm sure many people can relate to that. Yeah. Uh, we want to encourage people, you know, now that it's sunny and things are opening, get outside, Um, that bright sunlight is going to set your circadian rhythm and it's going to do really good things for your sleep cycle as well. Um, Get physically active and try and keep things outside of bed if you can. I know that I also don't want to um, penalize people for this because many people might feel like they have nowhere else to go, right? With your Mm -hmm. whole family at home, it can be really challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I can definitely relate to some of the stuff you said. Like I've seen people who just... I often have like a pile of clothes in my room. So it'll be on my bed when I'm working at my desk. And then it'll be on my desk when I'm sleeping in my bed. And that just (laughs) constant cycle of, okay, work, sleep, work, sleep, but all within the same, like, I guess, ecosystem is very, it's restricting. And then it makes you wonder, like, is time really passing? Or am I just working in circles? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I can certainly relate to that as well. It's a struggle. Of course. Yeah. And Nicole, I have a question. I was actually really curious about this. So um, all nighters is you've probably heard of them are becoming extremely popular among teenagers like Rhea and I, but they seem to have really different effects on everyone. For example, when I pull all nighters for school, I feel completely fine and energized the next day without any um, caffeine at all. But for people like Rhea, they become extremely cranky. They lose focus and have a super hard time. I'm staying awake. So I do. I have to take naps. Otherwise, I just can't function. (laughs) So what are the real effects of pulling an all-nighter on the body? And why did the effects vary so much from person to person? I think I'm with Rhea on this one, too. I'm I'm (laughs) on the nap team. Um, There are a lot of individual differences in our susceptibility to the effects, especially from a cognitive level of sleep deprivation. it's hard to say exactly what it is that would lead to differences. Um, I personally study the role of thoughts in our experience of fatigue. And so what my own personal research and review of the literature has shown me is that even after a poor night's sleep, the way that we think about our fatigue experience and the way that we think about our resources can certainly influence the way that we're feeling. So if we Um, really focus on how tired we are, if we monitor our bodies for signs of fatigue, um, if we catastrophize about the effects of fatigue and think about how hard it is for us to function, it can amplify the fatigue experience. 
-hmm. In contrast, when we think about our resources as renewable, um, or we pay less attention to these signs of fatigue and don't read into it as much, it can make us feel less fatigued throughout the day. So that's one piece of it. Um, but sleep deprivation in the form of pulling an all-nighter not only increases fatigue, but it increases sleepiness as well. And so that's where the mm -hmm. nap piece comes in. Um, because when we think about homeostasis, right, our, our body needing balance in terms of sleep pressure, when we spend an entire night awake, that pressure is really high to fall asleep, right? Mm -hmm. You've survived mm -hmm. yourself an entire night. And so that can lead to um, strong feelings of sleepiness during the day that you would, um, I imagine, want to stave off by using caffeine because caffeine can block the biological, um, essentially signal of sleep pressure. So what we understand that to be is adenosine and adenosine builds up the longer we're awake and active in a 24 hour period, but caffeine can prevent adenosine from binding to receptors. And so that's what leads us to not feel sleepy when we have caffeine. Unfortunately, when it wears off, you get that huge crash because your body goes into withdrawal. And so we can lead ourselves to feel all different kinds of ways throughout the day following an all-nighter, but the same way that fatigue can influence cognitive functioning, especially like higher order things like planning and cognitive flexibility and response inhibition, we know that sleepiness can influence cognition as well. And so, like I said, there's individual differences in how susceptible people are to these effects. Um, as well as how they might think about these effects during the day, which can amplify or minimize the consequences. But um, all-nighters can, uh, can be pretty taxing. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think that's really, really interesting that you mentioned like how our body sleep cycles, like, okay, the pressure that's being mounted on you to go to sleep just becomes so much that you just start falling asleep everywhere. And I remember reading earlier that um, some, I think, sea mammals who have to keep like breathing every so often and go coming up to the surface actually only sleep with half their brain at a time. So like dolphins, for example, might just sleep on one side so they can still breathe and then half their brain is awake, half their brain is asleep and then they'll switch. And they have just like, really high levels of tolerance to the sleep deprivation that they're able to survive living in water, but still needing like oxygen from the air. So, I mean, I'm sure I don't think humans like experience any of the, that half sleeping phenomena, but I think it's pretty interesting that uh, people have adapted. And I don't know, in the future, will we, do you think we'll ever adapt to needing less sleep? Great question. So um, I'm still kind of caught up on the dolphin thing because I've always found that so fascinating as well, that like only half of their brain is quote unquote shutting off at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and emerging research, I'm not so up to date on this body of literature, but the more research that comes out on human sleep and the, and what happens in our brains, um, is showing that different parts of our brains are awake and active at different times as well. So it's not like our brain uniformly shuts off when we're sleeping and then comes back online, but that we're actually seeing, um, I guess similar to dolphins, but maybe in a more nuanced way, parts of our brain sleeping and parts of our brains not sleeping. Do I think that we're going to adapt to needing less sleep? I don't know. I mean, society is certainly demanding that of us. The more we move away mm -hmm. from nine to five to this really 
awful 24 hour <laughs> cycle. Constantly being yeah. online and answering emails. And- yeah. I mean, that sucks. And I, I don't think we're going to, as a human race, adapt to needing less sleep. Um, our bodies do release critical hormones that um, help our bodies restore and heal, uh, including like human growth hormone. And so we want to be able that we're spending enough time asleep, that we're experiencing enough sleep cycles and getting enough deep sleep to have our bodies feel restored. Um, I think that if society is demanding us to sleep less, we're just likely to see more sleep deprivation than we are an actual shift in our biological need for a certain amount of sleep. With that said, yeah, there's individual differences in everyone's sleep needs, right? So um, it follows like a normal distribution. So a mean might be between six and eight hours, but that means that there are going to be people at the tails who need more than eight hours and people who mm-hmm. need less than six hours. And that's okay too. So there's no data supporting that. Like the less you sleep, the more unhealthy you are or the worse your sleep is. So I, I always like to put that out there that like sleep needs are kind of like a shoe size. Everyone has their own. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you're a size six, but you put on a size eight shoe, it's not going to make your foot grow. And so it would be helpful for, for people to recognize that as well, especially given the lit, um, litany of messaging around people needing eight hours of sleep in the media. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'll definitely keep that in mind when I'm talking with my classmates about sleep as well. Cause we always hear like, Oh, I only got six hours or I only got eight hours, but for own like, the definition of only for a lot of people is obviously different, like you mentioned. So that's some really interesting points that you brought up. And we also heard that you were involved in developing the free sleep app called Dose. So yeah. Dose addresses a bunch of sleep issues in teens and young adults. And you had said, we built the app using input from young adults about what they did and didn't want to see in a sleep app. We have completed two studies with promising results that teens liked the app and found it easy to use. And they started seeing improvements in their sleep after just four weeks. So I think that's really interesting. And it seems like an extremely useful app, especially for students like Simran and myself. So what made you want to create those and what, what does it do? So um, my supervisor, Dr. Colleen Carney was um, the one who had this idea that, I mean, sleep impacts adolescence in a really significant way. Same thing for adults where poor sleep can lead to, um, exacerbation or worsening of mental health problems. Um, But because we know that there's a lot of developmental changes happening during adolescence, um, it also tends to be an age of onset for many um, mental disorders, that this is kind of a critical window of intervening from almost like a standpoint of wanting to prevent mental disorders Mm -hmm. or developing Mm -hmm. disorders in teens. Um, We also know that sleep problems in this age group often go undiagnosed and underreported. So it's an age group that doesn't do a lot of help seeking when it comes to sleep problems, but the sleep problems have effects on mental health, effects on suicidality um, and effects on like academic functioning and daytime functioning. So Dr. Harney knew like this is something that we really need to be focusing on because it's such an underserved population with low access to like viable treatment options. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of the big picture of of why we wanted to create a sleep app for teens. Um, 
Another important thing to recognize is that use of either pediatric sleep treatments or um, adult sleep treatments in teens is likely inappropriate. So because of those developmental changes that I talked about already in teenagers, um, they tend to experience a wide variety of sleep problems, sometimes many of them at once. So it might not be uncommon to see on different nights of the week, insomnia and hypersomnia in a teenage mm -hmm. person um, or circadian disorders like delayed phase where we're seeing a very significant shift to later bedtimes and rise times combined with insomnia or excessive daytime sleepiness. So we're seeing a compounding of all of these problems. And so those comes in to play when we're like, okay, well, how can we treat all of these problems at once? How can we create something that's transdiagnostic, meaning it addresses a bunch of different sleep concerns at once, um, while also being something that is easy to access and something that teens actually want to use? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think that sounds like a very relevant app that can help of course, your target audience, which is teens, and really make a big impact, like you said. And after just four weeks, you can already start seeing changes. And I, that's just incredible. So thank you for creating that. I actually made an account for Dose last week, and I have not started using it yet, but I will get on it when school ends. Awesome. <laughs> and yeah, I'm just really excited to see what differences I can see in my sleep and just overall well-being. Absolutely. So I think one of the one of my favorite parts about those at least is the individuality of it. So it's not like everyone's getting the same recommendation. It's tailored to you based on how you track your sleep for those first two weeks. Mm -hmm. So we've set it up so that it uses um, norms or averages that are age appropriate based on uh, teens and young adults. And then mm -hmm. the app will give you tailored feedback based on some of the problems that it identifies. And so you can then choose to set goals in areas that it's identified as problem areas. Um, but you also might say, you know what, I actually don't want to work on that. That's not consistent with my goals or it's not consistent with my lifestyle. I don't really care to focus on that right now. And you can mm -hmm. choose to not set a goal in an identified area. And I think that that's really cool um, because the motivational literature tells us that when we tell people to do things and they don't really want to do it or it's not consistent with their goals, we don't get really good outcomes. So mm -hmm. it's an app that meets people where they're at, which um, is something I personally really love. Yeah, I really love the individuality that it gave me and how I really felt like, oh, this is tailored for me. It's not just one of those like cold apps that just covers everybody else. So um, I think that's great that you created that and I think that we are done with this long portion this long section of our podcast and we're going to move on to the lightning round so it's like the, the myth busting part so we're really excited me and Ria have never done this before it's our first one so we're excited to see how it goes I'm so, so just yeah so just to respect the time that we have instead of doing one minute answers maybe we can aim for like 30 seconds if that's yeah. possible okay Awesome. So are you ready, Nicole? I'm ready. Ready as I'll ever be. Awesome. Okay. So the first myth is about sleep. Snoring means you have sleep apnea. Okay. Snoring does not mean that you have sleep apnea. It can be pretty normal. I'd be concerned about sleep apnea if you snore like a chainsaw and or wake yourself <laughs> up from snoring so loud and so deeply. 
Okay. All right. That was interesting. Okay. Next one. We're going to try to make this really, really fast. Um, the more you sleep, the better. Um, false. Like I said, a lot of individual sleep needs. So some people need 10 hours of sleep. Some people need four hours of sleep. That's just kind of the name of the game. More does not always equal better. Sometimes more can make you feel even like groggier than you were before, right? If you've ever overslept, mm -hmm. you know that feeling. So not okay. across the board, no. Definitely going to note that down. All right. Next, children rarely experience sleep apnea. False. Children do experience sleep apnea. There's a really big literature on that. Um, if you notice choking, gasping, excessive loud snoring in your sleep, definitely get a sleep study for sleep apnea. Um, it's very important for your health. All right. Last, I think we have the last, second last one about sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is becoming increasingly more evident in people solely because of the increased number of people with obesity. Um, obesity certainly related to sleep apnea. When we think about an accumulation of fat, uh, either under the chin or on the neck, it can create, excuse me, pressure, um, that can obstruct the airway, but obesity is not the only thing that contributes to sleep apnea. Um, it can actually go underdiagnosed in, for example, like older women who are very thin and frail. Um, mm -hmm. they're almost like an invisible population when it comes to apnea, but they're at very high risk as well. Oh, wow. Okay. I think that one's good for our next question. It ties well nicely. Um, you don't need to seek treatment for sleep apnea. It will go away as you get older. It will definitely not go away as you get older. Um, the negative health effects will likely get worse as you get older because we see an increase in like medical comorbidity with metabolic diseases and things. Um, you definitely want to treat it and catch it early because it is associated with morbidity and mortality. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'm sure a lot of people will keep that in mind if they ever experience it. Uh, the next one I think is pretty important. Screen time helps you wind down. Screen time does not help you wind down. And it's not a thing about blue light. I want to put that out there right now. Um, <laughs> but it depends really what you're doing on the screen. So if you're scrolling Instagram and you have major FOMO, it's like unlikely to help you wind down. It's likely to make you feel really bad. And then feeling mm. bad is incompatible with sleep. So it really, it depends what you're doing is, is what I would say. Okay. That's, that's very important for me and other people my age to also note that it, it matters on what you're looking at. It's just, it's not like it's fully a terrible thing. So, okay. And this last one is about sleep. And I think it's really relevant for our listeners. Mm -hmm. If I sleep in on weekends, it makes up for the lack of sleep on weekdays. No, it does not. Um, your body without you trying to interfere will catch up on the deep sleep that it needs, which is what leads it to feeling restored. When we have variable sleep schedules, for example, waking up really early on weekdays and then sleeping in really late on weekends, we actually create a phenomenon called social jet lag, which is essentially jet lag without traveling. And that makes mm -hmm. us feel really crappy and can lead to essentially a moving target for our circadian rhythm to predict when we're going to fall asleep and wake up. So it can create more problems than solutions, I'd say. Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. Social jet lag. I've never heard of that. Um, <laughs> so that was a really great first cycle of our lightning round. The next few questions will be about depression. So the first one that we have is um, you cannot self-diagnose with depression. So we got this myth from people who, especially during COVID-19, have related to symptoms of depression, but they have no way of getting diagnosed. So is this true? And if not, how can these people support themselves? 
I think it depends on your definition of diagnosis. If you're saying like, okay, I need a diagnosis written down on paper by a doctor because I need to get medication for it. Um, that you can't do yourself. So you could go see a psychiatrist or your family doctor or psychologist, and they're able to formally diagnose depression for you. Um, but I would look for the symptoms of depression and you know yourself best. If you've been feeling down, depressed, um, or low most of the day, nearly every day for a period of two weeks and, or, um, feeling significantly less interested in or enjoying much less the activities that you used to be interested or you used to enjoy again, most of the day, nearly every day for the past two weeks or more, um, I would look into depression and, and thinking about how you can take care of yourself, um, and get connected to some resources. So I think reaching out, if you're noticing a period of two or more weeks of either of those cardinal depressive symptoms, um, it's better to get on top of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like how you mentioned that it's still important to value your feelings and all of that. So that's really important. So the next myth myth is um, antidepressants don't do anything. And while you're answering that, could you just explain very briefly how do antidepressants work and how do like those types of medications like chemically help the person deal with their depression? Oof, that is such a loaded question. <laughs> Um, antidepressants do help some people. I'd say approximately 50% of people do benefit from antidepressants, which is pretty much the same figure as those who benefit from any type of major therapy for depression, um, mm -hmm. different psychological therapies as well. So there's no such thing as a one size fits all. Um, mm -hmm. our most common antidepressants these days are SSRIs, which stand for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, in the period of time, several decades ago, when antidepressants were being developed, it was thought that depression was the result of a chemical imbalance, um, for example, mm -hmm. in serotonin and dopamine. That theory has likely, or not likely, it, it has been debunked. And so there is no simple answer as to how antidepressants work. It's kind of freaky. We don't exactly know. We know that they lead to good effects by blocking the reuptake of things like serotonin or norepinephrine. Mm -hmm. um, but there is no evidence that says depression results from a chemical imbalance. So tough to answer that one, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Really interesting, especially since like, obviously the way we treat like neurological disorders and the way we treat like physical disorders is a lot is very different. And I think it's, it's interesting how you mentioned that 50% is still like currently that's where we're at. So maybe in the future, we'll see how the technology develops. Um, this is the last one in our lightning round. You can only get depression if you have previously experienced trauma. False, 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 false. <laughs> so trauma can certainly lead to things like depression as well as anxiety, post-traumatic stress. Um, but you do not need to have experienced trauma or some negative life event in order to experience depression. Sometimes it can come out of the blue. Sometimes it can come from traumas that have a little T rather than a big T, right? Things that are significant to you, but don't meet our um, diagnostic and statistical manuals definition of a capital T trauma. Um, I think the best thing is really just to know if you have a change in the way that you're experiencing yourself, if you're feeling more down than usual, less interested than usual, um, you're functioning differently than usual, uh, that is the best sign. But you do not need to have 
trauma in order to experience depression. No, thank you very much for that answer. And it was really great to have you bust all those myths with us. Really good advice for ourselves and our listeners. And I think what you study and what you've talked with us today is really good for understanding sleep and also making some subjects like depression less taboo, especially around many cultures. So thank you again, Nicole, for joining us and talking to us about your work. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. This was so fun. Yeah, of course. And lastly, just thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode of STEM Power with sleep specialist Nicole Carmona. Be sure to check us out on all social media platforms at STEM Power Ottawa, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.